Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the strength that you give us. We thank you, Lord, for this church, that we can gather together and worship you. We thank you, Lord, for the history of this church, that two world wars, that COVID, that all sorts of things didn't prevent this church from meeting, and it's persevered up until today, since 1907. And Lord, we attribute that to your faithfulness. Thank you to your faithfulness to us as a church. Thank you to your faithfulness to us personally. And this morning, Lord, as we tackle some difficult topics, I pray that the truth would be clear to all of us, that we'd see the truth for what it is, but that we'd also understand your grace, your love, and your mercy for all of us who are broken people and sinners. Lord, we love you. Please be with us now. Speak through me in Jesus' name. Amen. We all love a showdown, the title match, the big game that's coming up here in a couple of months. And we like these big events. They're hyped up. We look forward to them. You know, the battles like the USA hockey team versus the Russian hockey team, the miracle on ice. We think about Boise State versus Oklahoma way back in 2007, quite a showdown. We might even think about the showdowns between places like Hobby Lobby and Michael's Crafts. Another showdown, just a different kind. Well, this morning, I want to talk a about a showdown that speaks to all of us. It's not about sports. It's not about hobbies and crafts. It's actually about food, something we are all aware of. Now, taking a time machine back into the 1970s, the king of fast food was McDonald's. They were the reigning champ. And falling behind was Burger King. They were losing out to McDonald's on hamburger sales. And so a bunch of advertising executives got together, and they thought, what can we do? How can we start to beat McDonald's? And as they were thinking about the McDonald's brand and their hamburgers, they realized that they could capitalize on what they thought was McDonald's big weakness. See, when you go to McDonald's, and yes, I go to McDonald's. I'm not too good for McDonald's. When you go to McDonald's and you order the number one, the Big Mac, it comes to you prepackaged. They decided what the Big Mac is. You're just simply choosing something that they made. And if you go to McDonald's and, you know, you want to hold the pickles, a little light on the onions, not as much cheese, sure, they can do it, but it's kind of an inconvenience. That's not the way it was made. And so Burger King capitalized on this, and they came up with their motto at Burger King, you have it your way. You go to McDonald's to order someone else's food, but at Burger King, you have it your way. Whatever you want, we will make it for you. And that's the why this motto has stuck with them for almost 50 years. They've had that since 1974. It almost changed the whole vision of their brand before they were the Burger King, and now you, the person walking in, you're the Burger King because you get what you want. And that motto has stuck with us for so long because it really strikes to our ego. It really gets at the human condition. In life, we want to have things our way. I had it my way. Frank Sinatra even made a great song about that, right? 
Now, when it comes to something like a hamburger, having it your way is pretty inconsequential. Unless you load up like four things of cheese on there and half a gallon of mayo, then your heart might complain. But other than that, it's not the biggest deal. But when we have that same attitude towards other areas of our lives, when we try to have it our way, it is a big deal. And it can lead to a lot of consequences and a lot of pain. And one of the biggest areas a lot of us feel the pain from trying to have it our way is when it comes to relationships between each other, romantic relationships. It's the breeding ground for a lot of pain. In fact, a lot of the top songs, some of the best works of art, are inspired by the pain that we can feel from broken relationships. I was thinking about it this week. Even the way we talk about relationships, we use these words that are painful. I have a crush on somebody. I fell for someone. He made her weak in the knees. I've fallen in love. I'm heartbroken. I'm crushed from what happened. All of these descriptive words to talk about something that happens to us emotionally. Now, obviously, all of us this morning, we don't want to feel the pain of broken relationships. And if we're feeling that now, we'd rather not be feeling it. Well, in the Bible, we learn that God made us as relational beings with him and with each other. And in fact, God made relationships a different way. Instead of having relationships our way, we can have them God's way. And when we have relationships God's way, that's the key to having our relationships thrive and continue. So today we're going to tackle the question of how can we have thriving relationships and marriages, and how can we do relationships God's way? So if you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to continue on in Matthew, and we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 32. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. And while you are getting there, just a reminder, we're continuing on. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he's instructing his disciples what it means to follow him. And while he's teaching his disciples this, he's also calling out the rebels in the crowd, and he's also calling out the religious leaders in the crowd, and calling them to join in his followers and live for a different kingdom. So in our text today, we're going to see a couple of different things. We're going to see two keys to thriving relationships, and then an application for us all. Two keys for thriving in a relationship. And the first one, the first key to thriving in relationships is we must have platonic purity. We must rid our relationships from the carcinogen known as lust. And so as we enter into verse 27, last week we saw Jesus, there's six different topics that he's addressing the crowds with. Over and over he says, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, I, the authoritative figure on the Old Testament, this is what it was meant to be. And it's almost like a thriller. Last week we dealt with anger, and this week we're dealing with adultery. So Jesus begins in verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now this goes back to the, set, the Ten Commandments in Exodus 
chapter 20, you shall not commit adultery. And back then, this was widely recognized as sleeping with another person's spouse. And so, of course, this was taught in the synagogues. It was taught by the rabbis. But as we will learn, the Pharisees treated this much the same way they did anger. Last week, it said, you shall not kill. And they said, well, I haven't murdered anybody, so check the box. We're good. Even though in their hearts, they had all sorts of anger. They viewed people as problems to get rid of. They were corrupt inside. Well, the same thing's going to happen here. They wanted the gold star. They wanted the pat on the back. The religious leaders wanted the attaboy because they didn't literally commit physical adultery, but something else was brooding in their hearts and in their minds. And so Jesus corrects that in verse 28. He says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, over and over we've seen in Jesus' sermon that it's not just the external behaviors that count, but it's also our internal, our desires, our wills, what we want. It's not merely just keeping the right rules. Now, it's really important to understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus isn't saying sexual desire is bad. It's great. It's a gift that God has given us. It's something for our pleasure, something we enjoy, and it's built into his command for Adam and Eve, man and woman, married, to be fruitful and multiply. It's what draws that together. So sexual desire in itself is not bad. But it is bad when we look or notice someone is attractive, but then make a choice to go farther. In the verse 28 here, it says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. And in the Greek, that word with is pros, and it means in order to, or because of, you're trying to get something with this decision. It's not just noticing someone's attractive, it's taking it a step further. It's taking that person and mentally in your mind thinking about things that are not good, things that would cross a line, indecent acts in our brains. And so Jesus says that if that has occurred, if we've gone as far as lust, not just sexual attraction, but lust, then adultery has been committed in the heart. And again, we need to understand what Jesus is saying and not saying. It's very similar to what we saw last week. Last week, we talked about anger in our hearts and murder. Now, anger and murder are both evil. We shouldn't be doing those things, but they're different. We can't say that if I'm angry with someone, I've murdered them, or else we'd all probably be on death row right now. Well, in the same way, Jesus is saying that when we've lusted after someone, we've taken that first step down a path of all sorts of sexual deviancy. Literal, physical adultery and lust are not the same thing, but they're both immoral and they're both bad. And for us today, we can be modern-day Pharisees if we treat this the same way. The Pharisees back then said, well, I didn't actually do it, so it's no big deal. I'm righteous. And today, if we say, well, we didn't actually do these things, but we're thinking about them, but they're brooding inside of us, we're just like the Pharisees, rotten inside, but living morally on the outside. 
When I was reading this, I was reminded of a technology writer named Paul Miller. It was 11.50 p.m. on April 30th, 2012, and Paul Miller was going to make a bold decision. He wrote on his blog that he is disconnecting from the internet for an entire year. He's saying goodbye. Because as a technology writer, he understood more than anyone the harm that the internet could do, distracting him from his work, keeping him focused instead of focused on his family, adding and increasing his anxieties. And so he disengaged the router, he got rid of the internet cable, he took his phone and traded it in for a dumb phone, he went without the internet. And he stuck with it. One year later, he logged back on, and the first article on his website was titled, I'm Back. This is what he said. He said, I'm back. Now I'm supposed to tell you how it solved all of my problems. I'm supposed to be enlightened. I'm supposed to be more real now and more perfect. But he said this, what I do know is that I can't blame the internet for my circumstances or my problems. I have many of the same priorities I had before I left the internet, and I have no guarantee I'll stick with them now. In fact, I probably won't. At least I will know that it's not the internet's fault. I'll know that ultimately only one person is responsible for my problems, and that person is me. I don't need to tell you this morning, but we live in a sex-saturated culture. Everywhere, things can cause us to lust, and they can capitalize on making you lust, get you hooked. But we need to avoid being like Paul Miller when we think about this. You know, if Jesus was to ask us who is responsible for our lust, we can get a lot of different answers. Some might point to the culture and say, well, it's the culture's responsibility. Every time I turn on the TV, I go on the computer, I go in a grocery store, see the magazines, whatever it is, it's built to cause me to lust. It's the culture's fault. And so we can say, okay, well, let's just distance ourselves then. You know, let's get rid of our technology. Let's only go to Christian, quote-unquote, things, Christian activities, Christian-branded materials, even if it's not. And that might be good, but Jesus says that's not to blame. Others of us might say, well, it's the opposite sex. It's the men or the women dressing provocatively. I think of a Christian school that's in Florida. They have separate sidewalks for men and for women. And why do they have that? Well, the logic is, well, if they walk by each other, they cause each other to lust. I mean, the ultimate extreme version of this is Islam. Wear a full burqa because it's the women's fault. So if they cover up, then we're good. But Jesus says, no, nah, that's not right either. Sometimes we might even blame our lust on a spouse. Maybe they have a different drive, different desire than we do. It's been more than 72 hours, aren't I? I can't help myself. I got to do something. But Jesus again says, no, that's not quite right. You know, while the culture can add to it, why other people might try to provoke us, even if we have marital tension, Jesus says that lust here is a choice. It's looking for a certain goal or a certain end. It's a desire. And so like Paul Miller, we can't blame our lust on other people. We must take responsibility ourselves. We can't live in denial. And I know that this sin can entrap and it's tricky and people get stuck in this. But the first step is understanding that we can't blame anyone but ourselves. And how this works out for a thriving relationship 
is when we have a thriving relationship, when we have platonic purity between each other, we see each other for who we really are, for how God designed us as another person made in God's image. When we choose that act of our will to lust, we don't view the other person as a person anymore. We view them as something we want, part of our greed to get something that we need, to scratch an itch, to feed our appetite. And so it's key for a thriving relationship between the sexes to have platonic purity. And so naturally, as Jesus talks about this, this flows into speaking about marriage and divorce. And so the second key for a thriving relationship is to view marriage as permanent, or permanence in marriage. Now this morning, I'll be honest with you, I don't get super nervous, but this morning I am nervous preaching. I'm going to preach the truth. I'm going to preach God's word. But a subject like divorce is challenging on so many levels. And I know many of you understand firsthand the pain, the trauma, the devastation that can happen with a failed marriage, with a broken and divorce situation. It's challenging because there's so many ways we can approach this topic. It's challenging because I know when we listen and when we teach about divorce, some of you want to hear theological truth. You want to hear what the Bible says, but also you want to know if I think God approves of your divorce or of your parents' divorce or of your remarriage, etc. The truth is I, my heart goes out to everyone that has been affected by this. In many ways, every one of us has. It's so pervasive. I also want to say from the beginning that relationships are messy. Marriages can be messy. Sin makes things messy. And so sometimes we have situations that it is difficult to know what to do. There's no easy answers. The Bible gives us principles about marriage and divorce, but it doesn't speak to every situation. So what do you do if you're in a situation that's not explicitly discussed in Scripture. Well, the easy way is to turn a blind eye and just forget about it. Just, you know, not think twice about it. It's the easy way out. The difficult way is to see what the Bible teaches on it and to prayerfully and with others consider what the right course of action is. And so if that's what I encourage you to do this morning. If you're struggling, if you're considering divorce, if you're thinking about divorce or the implications of this teaching, dig in. Pray about it. Seek a trusted friend or a trusted Christian. Walk through this with them. It's worth it. So Jesus begins in verse 31. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 31, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now we need to understand some background here. This goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, God allowed divorce to happen. As we're going to see in a minute, it was one of those, (sighs) well, okay. It was a concession. It was not what God wanted. And if a couple divorced back then, the man was to give a certificate of divorce to his wife. And in Deuteronomy chapter 24, it talks about if he finds some indecency in her. Now, there was two kind of lines of thought back in the day, two rabbis. 
One of the rabbis took this conservatively and probably in context much more than the other. He said that this meant some sexual indecency, and that's what it's referring to. The other rabbi, however, misinterpreted this and really emphasized whatever or some indecency. And so we have on record from historians like Josephus that people were getting divorced because a woman burned her husband's toast. That people were getting divorced because they disagreed about where to live. That people were getting divorced over the most petty types of things. It's on record. And so basically, with a little ambiguity there in Deuteronomy, they made this verse however they wanted it to be. It allowed them to take a very light view of marriage and not take their marriage commitment seriously at all. So that was what was happening. Now, turn with me. We're actually going to flip to Matthew chapter 19. This is the other part of Matthew where Jesus teaches on marriage and divorce. And he goes a little more in depth. And so we're going to look at Matthew chapter 19, but keep your finger in Matthew 5 because we're going to finish in Matthew 5. So in Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees are asking Jesus about divorce. Follow along with me in verse 3. It said, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? See right there, you see this teaching that the majority had. Verse 4, Jesus answers, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So they ask Jesus a question he doesn't answer. Instead, he goes back and says, remember the nature of marriage. God created male and female, and God created and instituted marriage. In marriage, a husband and a wife vow before God to become one. There's still two People, they still have individual personalities, but they are one together. And the beauty of that, and one of the significances to marriage, is that it's the closest image we have on earth to the Trinity. We see in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each distinct persons, yet they are one. And in a crude way, marriage pictures that, distinct persons who have become one. So there's a spiritual significance, depth, and a weight to this. And Jesus says, this is the importance of marriage. Let no man separate what God has joined together. Now, when you hear that in verse 6, let not man separate, that implies that it is possible for man to separate or for a couple to be divorced. Continuing on in verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? And to send her away. If marriage is this serious, then why can we divorce? And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce from your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. It was not meant to be this way. And so to summarize, Jesus' teaching on divorce is this. Don't. Marriage is between a man and a woman, and it's meant to be permanent. It pictures the triune God who made the world, and it's a promise made before God to each other, before witnesses. So that's the nature of marriage and the background of what happened. 
Now flip back to Matthew chapter 5, and we'll see what Jesus says here in verse 32. That's the way marriage was supposed to be. It's supposed to be permanent, but we live in a sinful world. We live in a messy world. We live in a painful world. And so that means divorce is going to happen in our world. Jesus says this in verse 32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus here gives a biblical ground or a biblical basis for legitimate divorce, sexual immorality. And this is tricky. In the Greek, the word is pornea. And there's kind of two false turns people take with this. Sometimes they narrow it down way too much. They say, well, sexual immorality only means these specific physical acts of sin, incestuous relationships, sleeping with another person's spouse. That's a little incorrect because pornea is a broad term for all sorts of sexual deviancy. On the other hand, some people have interpreted this to mean that any hint of an immoral or unfaithful act is grounds for divorce. But that can't be the basis either because that completely cuts across what Jesus is trying to do. Jesus is trying to have people take marriage more seriously, have marriages stay together. But if we interpret this as him then saying, well, you can have a biblical grounds for divorce, if over the entire course of your life you have one lustful thought, then every couple in the world would have grounds for a biblical divorce. So what does this word mean, this pornea Greek word? Well, throughout the Old Testament and the New, it does refer to physical acts that people have done. But in our day and age, in the 21st century, it gets a lot more gray and a lot more nuanced with the advent of the internet, of things that can happen on the internet, of webcams, of the plethora of pornography and habitual use of pornography. It doesn't leave us a lot of easy answers. There must be wisdom, there must be discernment, and there must be prayerful consideration whether each scenario and situation is a grounds for divorce. And this is a tough teaching. It can be difficult to hear. Jesus says that if there isn't a divorce on the basis of sexual immorality, and we learn in 1 Corinthians that another biblical basis is abandonment, if that doesn't occur, then the divorce makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery as well. The thinking here is you should still be married to another person. So by marrying another, you are being with someone else besides who should be your spouse. If you marry a divorced person on illegitimate grounds, you are sleeping with someone who should be someone else's spouse. Now that is the truth of God's word today, a difficult truth, a hard truth, because of how difficult and sinful our world is. But I would be very sad if you came today and all you heard was that, and you didn't hear anything about grace. I'd only be preaching half the truth if I teach truth, but I don't teach grace, and I don't love well. So I want to take a moment to speak to a couple different groups of individuals this morning. I'm coming from a place of my pastoral heart, my empathy. And so first, to those in our congregation 
who have been divorced on a biblical ground, on legitimate basis, and you're single, I want to tell you this morning that I love you, this church loves you. I'm so sorry you've had to deal with this. And we want you here at our church, and we don't want for a second for people to judge you or to look down on you for your situation. We want you to feel comfortable here, thrive in friendships and in relationships. For those of you this morning that are divorced and single and didn't divorce on biblical grounds, I say the same thing. God loves you. He has grace for you. If you come to him, he can forgive you. We love you. The church staff wants you to be thriving here in relationships as well. If I can be so bold as to gently encourage you this morning, consider whether restoration is possible. Maybe that could occur. Be willing to maybe have that possibility. It's impossible in some situations, but pray to God for that. If that avenue is still available, pray to God and see. It's not beyond him. It's not impossible. We've heard amazing stories of the restoration God has done in marriages and in relationships. So be willing and open to how God might use your story and the amazing thing that could happen. For those of you this morning uh, who are divorced, who didn't have grounds for divorce biblically, who remarried, I say the same thing. God loves you. He has grace for you. The church loves you. But run to the cross this morning. Run to the cross. You know, there's something that we can never, ever, ever be tired of, and that's God's grace and mercy for us. The truth is, biblically, that your current marriage began with a sin. It began with adultery. So confess that to God. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. But secondly, and please hear me now, regardless of how your marriage began, if you are a man and a woman married together, that is the right person for you. This marriage is meant to be permanent. You're not in continual adultery. You are truly married. Maybe this illustration can help you. Um, Imagine you had a child, a daughter, who was a genius, a genius child. And so you went to a private school and you forged her age. You lied about how old she was to get her into the first grade. She completed the first grade and then you felt guilty. You went to the principal, you confessed. Well, did she get a legitimate first grade education? Yeah, she did. She got the full thing. She got the same thing as other first graders. Did it begin on a sinful ground? Yes, but that doesn't take away the legitimacy of her education and legitimacy of her working through her her grade school. And so in the same way, understand that the tough truth is your marriage may have begun with a sin here, but God loves you, God forgives you, God has grace for you, and now you are married to the right person. So stick with it and make this one count. And lastly, for all the married people here this morning, and especially for those who are on the ropes, who are getting exasperated, who have thought about divorce, I just encourage you to hang in there, to stay with it. I know this can be so difficult when the person you're closest to in the world has tension with you, when there's arguing, fighting, when there's brokenness there. But please, fight with all you have. Get help if you need to get help. 
but do what you can to remain in there. And if you have biblical grounds for divorce, please think through that with a fellow Christian. Jesus permits it. You don't have to do it, but Jesus does allow it. So please think through it prayerfully and consider the possibility of what restoration would look like. The second key to thriving relationships is that marriage is permanent. And so what is an application for all of us this morning? What is something we all can do? We need to fight for faithfulness. Fight for faithfulness. In verse 29, Jesus uses a little bit of hyperbole, a little bit of dark humor here. And he does it in a genius way. I mean, I know he's the God man, but sometimes I just stand back and think, he's so smart. This is the perfect line. Because Jesus corrects the Pharisees, and he shows the seriousness of sin at the same time. In verse 29, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. And so Jesus here, he's kind of sarcastically correcting the Pharisees. See, the Pharisees were all about externally doing the right things. And so Jesus says, hey, if it's all about following the right rules, you can be perfect and never sin again if you just chop off the parts of your body that cause you to sin. One author said Jesus was jesting with the Pharisees, and it was almost like he was saying, you could roll into heaven, perfect, a mutilated stump. But we know that even if you don't have eyes, you could still lust. You can still have your imagination go. Even if you didn't have your hand, you could still steal or commit other acts of sin. You can't change the heart that way. And so Jesus was cutting at this pharisaical way. At the same time, he was using hyperbole to show us the seriousness of sin. A couple people in church history have taken this literally, most famously the church father Origen of Alexandria. He hurt himself based on this verse. That is not what Jesus is telling us to do because we just saw that ultimately it doesn't eliminate the problem. Instead, this is a clarion call for us that we need to take sin seriously, that we might think it's not that big of a deal, it doesn't hurt anybody, but it is a big deal. It corrupts our hearts. It corrupts our minds. And ultimately, the consequence of sin is hell. It comes with a big price. And so some of us this morning, we need to fight for faithfulness, and that means we have some maiming to do. We need to poke out our eyes. I'm not talking about poking out your eyeballs. I'm talking about your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod, your iMac. You know what I'm saying? Some of us, to fight for faithfulness, we need to distance ourselves from the portals or the gateways that we go to this corruption over and over. Set up filters on your phone. Lock it down. Put filters on devices. Maybe it's time to switch in a phone for a dumb phone. Maybe it's time to throw away the romance novels. We need to take sin seriously. But we know that ultimately, those things that we maim, that doesn't change our hearts. It just keeps us from stopping the chaos. It keeps us from not drinking anymore of the poison. Ultimately, our hearts are changed by God's 
grace. And God is willing to do it. His grace is transforming grace. So maim a little bit, fight for faithfulness, but also rely on God's grace to change your heart, your mind, and your desires. For others today, fighting for faithfulness means fight for your marriage till death do you part. Many of you vowed that. You said for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health until death do us part. So take that seriously. Fight with all you have. Other than our relationship with God, the most important thing in our life should be our relationship with our spouse. And so many times it's easy with the busyness of work, of kids, of activities, of church activities. All sorts of things can get in the way. So maybe today you need to fight for it. That means having time where you focus your attention on your spouse, setting up regular sorts of date nights, enjoy each other, have fun, try new things, break out of the mold, pray together. There's a million ways you could go with this, but fight for faithfulness. That might even mean getting help, getting biblical counseling on some issues you're going through, but stick with it. Fight together. Marriage is for the tough-minded. In God's eyes, it is a permanent thing. This morning, I want to close with a story that I heard from a Christian blogger, Tim Chalice. He tells a story about a farmer one day who had a sheep, he had some pigs, he had some other animals. One day he heard this big, loud noise, and he realized that the pig and his little sheep had escaped. They moved over to the fence, they put all their weight on the the fence posts, the fence fell down, and they were free. They were roaming this world that was unknown to them. And he looked for them, and he looked for them, but he couldn't find them. They were charging out there, you know, when your dog gets out loose from the backyard, they go for it sometimes. That's what was happening here. And night came, and he still hadn't found them. And the next day had been over 24 hours, and he's thinking, what happened to my animals? What could they have gotten into? And all of a sudden, he heard a faint cry. And he walked closer, and the cry grew louder. And he used that to guide him to where he found his pig and his sheep, stuck in a ditch, just wallowing there in the mud. And the pig had been content to just hang out in the ditch, hang out in the mud. But the sheep realized its helpless condition. The sheep realized that it could do nothing except cry out for another to come and rescue it. And that story is a beautiful image of us and our neediness, our helplessness before God and his love for us. I know when we're speaking about topics like lust, like divorce, like adultery, like pornography. These are problems that cut us to our core. There's shame, there's embarrassment, there's humiliation involved in all of these issues. And so this morning, I want to say, cry out to God if you're struggling. Cry out to God if you feel those emotions well up. Cry out to that farmer. You're helpless. You might be in the ditch, but he loves you. He cares for you. That's why I'm here. That's why we're all here. We've tasted the goodness of God. We've tasted his grace. And when you do that, you can be cleansed of your sin. We've said it once, he is faithful and just. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We can experience thriving relationships again, even if we've been through the ditch, been through the gutter before. There might still be consequences, but we can experience the joy of not 
having it our way, but doing it God's way. So if you find yourself in that position, cry out to him. Brothers, sisters, Christians, we can't be the pig. Let us be the sheep. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your unending love and your incredible forgiveness. We don't deserve your forgiveness. We don't deserve your love. You know what's in our hearts. You know what's in our minds. You know the things that we do, Lord, over and over, trying to have it our way instead of doing things your way. Thank you so much for your grace. Your grace has transformed my heart, my life. Your grace sets us free. Lord, I pray for anyone listening today, if they're stuck, if they're considering divorce, if they're hurt, if they're engulfed by lust, please be with them. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you, that they would know you are a loving God who cares for them, and that, God, you have seen it all. There's nothing we can do to make you love us less. Thank you for your love, God. In Jesus' name, amen.